Let's pray that God would help us to reflect on his message to us today. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that your spirit will work in our minds and our hearts. Please encourage us with your message today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you've just heard, uh, my family has recently returned from a five-week overseas trip. And whilst away, we spent quite a bit of time in London, which we found particularly interesting. And while there, we went to the British Library, which is home to this. Uh, that's an extract of what is known as the Codex Sinaiticus. It's the oldest existing manuscript of the complete New Testament, dating from about the 4th century. And it's one of many, many, many ancient documents, ancient copies of the scriptures, which give us great confidence that the Bible we read today has been accurately transmitted to us today. Whilst there, we also, as you've heard, did a Christian tour of London, where we heard about various people, including William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English in the 16th century. It was a massively influential translation. It affected subsequent translations, but it also impacted on the English language. We also, on that tour, saw a statue of the great 18th century preacher John Wesley, whose ministry led to the conversions of perhaps tens of thousands of people uh, around the UK at that time. But not only did he lead to, was he used to help bring about the salvation of so many thousands of people, but at least one historian has suggested that his impact on English culture at the time was such that England managed to avoid having their equivalent of the French Revolution. Massive impact. And uh, earlier this year, or late last year, I read a book by an English writer uh, based uh, in the south of England who pointed out uh, that the Bible has introduced into Western culture, including England culture and London culture, uh, values such as human equality and dignity, compassion, forgiveness, um, and, and the idea of science, etc., etc. So really, London, like Sydney, in fact, has been massively influenced and massively shaped by the Bible. Yet, the impression I got walking around London was that most people there were pretty much oblivious to it or had only a cursory awareness of the Bible. That would be my suspicion. I suspect some who would have known a bit about the Bible would have been confused about the Bible, sceptical about the Bible and perhaps even uninformed about it. If I could have done a street survey of Londoners and asked them about the Bible, I suspect they're probably like Sydney-siders as well. And some would say, oh, the Bible's a bunch of myths, or it's a combination of fact and fiction. Or the Bible has changed over time. Or the Bible's biased and just expresses the view of the dominant classes, or, or some, something like that. Now, in a world such as this, or in a country such as this, confusion about the Bible, I think, can also creep into the church, whether in London or Sydney, the Blue Mountains, wherever. It can cause people to doubt the reliability of the Bible. It can encourage people to dilute the message of the Bible. It can cause people to pick and choose the bits of the Bible they like and ignore the bits that they don't like. And what my hope is that this morning, as we look at the topic of the formation of the Bible, that we'll be encouraged to see that we can and indeed should trust all of the Bible. 
Now, if you've been coming here for a while, you notice that normally our sermons here are what we would describe as exegetical sermons. That's where we sequentially work our way through a book of the Bible and unpack its meaning. But sometimes during the year, we also do topics and thematic sermon series. And we're currently doing a four-week topical series called By the Book, where we're actually looking at the Bible and aspects relating to it itself. And as I said this morning, we're looking at the formation of the Bible. You see, people might sometimes wonder, where does the Bible come from? How did we actually get this book that we hold in our hands today? Most of us probably know that it didn't just sort of, you know, drop from heaven, land on the ground, and oh, suddenly the Bible, and a voice didn't come from heaven saying, you know, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. But if it didn't happen like that, how did we get it? So that's what we're going to think about this morning under the heading, The Formation of the Bible. Hopefully you've got your uh, sermon outline, but also we have the screen behind me. And uh, firstly, I want to think about the inspiration of the Bible. Secondly, the recognition or the formation of the Bible or the, the canon of the Bible. Uh, thirdly, and fairly briefly, the transmission of the Bible from the first century to today. And fourthly, a few thoughts on the translation of the Bible. Now, each of those four topics could, we could discuss at great length. And so I can only really do a little bit on each. But I've thought about each a lot. So if you'd like to discuss any of these topics further... I would be only too delighted to talk to you after the service or over a coffee or anything like that. The end result is that I hope that what we do will reinforce our trust uh, in the Bible. So let's start firstly by thinking about the inspiration of the Bible. We heard a few moments ago in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 with reference to biblical prophecy, prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that verse highlights in itself that uh, the Bible, which contains uh, prophecy, uh, is both a divine book and a human book. Firstly, it's a divine book because its ultimate author is God. You see, we read there that when prophets, when they spoke, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, speaking more generally, not just about prophets, but other writers of biblical text says all scripture is God-breathed, that is, inspired by God. And if God is utterly reliable, and if his word is divinely inspired, his word is utterly reliable as well. It's a divine book. But secondly, the Bible is also a human book. It's written by humans, uh, by humans, to humans, using human words, using human genres. And as a result, humans such as ourselves can understand it. But it's no ordinary human book. It's different to every other human book because, as I said, it's inspired by God. God organised things such that what the human authors wrote down was what he wanted written. It's divine, it's human, it's understandable, and it's absolutely trustworthy. Now, if I was out buying something, rather, and a salesman in a shop said something to me, I might trust what he said. And again, I might not. If my wife tells me something, I'll almost always trust what she says, but I'm aware that like myself and all of us, she makes mistakes occasionally. So I just have that element of, you know, caution if we would with anyone. But if God tells us something, rather, we can absolutely trust him. We can trust his wisdom, his intentions. He doesn't make mistakes. He knows what he's on about. So when the Bible speaks about how best to live, 
when the Bible tells us what it thinks the world is like, if the Bible tells us what happens after death, if the Bible tells us what we need to be do to be saved and to become part of God's family, we can trust it. Quick thought point. If this is the case, when the Bible is properly understood, where we find that it says something rather that we find difficult, or if it says something rather which is at variance to our culture, or if it says something that we don't fully understand, we can still trust in God because we know it's reliable and trustworthy. We can trust in God's wisdom. So, Bible inspired by God. Now, the Bible, as you may know, contains 66 books, uh, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. You may ask, who decided which books went into the Bible? Which brings us to our second point, the recognition of the Bible. And the issues addressed here are sometimes referred to as the canon of Scripture. If you've ever heard the phrase, the canon of Scripture, it's talking about you know, what books are in the Bible. Now, um, the canon is a collection of scriptural books which God has given his people. Now, you'll notice that my heading says the recognition of the Bible because the idea is that people didn't sit around picking and choosing which books they'd like in the Bible, like, oh, I like that book, that's lovely, well, let's have that one. Oh, don't like what that one says, we won't have that one. Yes, I'll have that and that, but we won't have that. It's not as if people sat around figuring out which books they would like. It was more a question of people recognising those which were divinely inspired and using them. It was a case of recognising what God has done rather than trying to be above the Bible, choosing which bits we would and wouldn't have. Now, to give a slightly flawed analogy of this recognition idea, um, just say uh, I see a magnificent sunset tonight and I say, oh, that is a magnificent sunset. Now, my saying it's a magnificent sunset doesn't make it a magnificent sunset. It was a magnificent sunset regardless of whether I had anything to say about it or not. All I'm doing is recognising what's there. It's like that with the scriptures. People were recognising God's inspired word and thus using it. Uh, Mark Thompson is the principal of Moore College and has written a very helpful book about the Bible, which myself and various other members of st staff have read all or part of. And he says that the church, that is Christians, recognise the canon, it does not create it. The scriptures are over the church. The church is not over the scriptures selecting it. We recognise God's word. Let's think about that in a bit more detail. Firstly, with respect to the Old Testament. Now, from, the, from our perspective today, I think uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament and recognising them as such is pretty straightforward. You see, God's people, the Jews, had pretty much settled on those 32, not 39 books as their, as their scriptures by the first century, uh, the time of Jesus. And so the Old Testament we have is the, the Bible which Jesus would have used. An American theologian by the name of Michael Kruger has noted that both Jesus and the New Testament writers show no indication that there is any dispute regarding the books that were in the Old Testament. Jesus, in fact, endorses these books. He quotes from all three major sections of the Old Testament, you know, the law, the prophets and the writings. And he said in our Luke 24 reading, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, referring to the writings. Yeah, he, even, he sees himself as fulfilling it. So Jesus, I guess, gives the tick of endorsement to the Old Testament, those 39 books. And from my perspective, if those 39 books are good enough for Jesus, they're good enough for me. 
We can pretty much take them on board, can't we? Now, with the New Testament, it's slightly different because Jesus was not physically around on earth to basically give the tick of endorsement to the 27 books which we have in our New Testament. But we can still have great confidence in the New Testament canon. Let's see how that works out. Now, once again, this is a quick summary. Jesus tells his disciples at the end of Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And verse 20 says that they are to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So the disciples were to go out with a teaching ministry, teaching them to obey what Jesus had taught them. Now, uh, earlier, uh, John 14, 26 encourages those disciples with the words, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So after Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, the disciples went out teaching Jesus' teachings as they had been commanded to do and the Holy Spirit was reminding them and helping them in doing that. And we read about some of that in Acts. Now, some of those disciples then committed this down to, to paper and wrote letters and gospels and such forth. And other people also wrote down, who weren't apostles themselves, wrote down this apostolic teaching. And it's this, these apostolic writings or apostolic teachings, which were recorded, which are, make up the 27 books in the New Testament. That's how that works. Now, when were these 27 books of the New Testament recognised as being divinely inspired as, as the New Testament canon? That's an interesting question, and you could really give three answers to that question. If someone said, when is the time when a specifically written list of those 27 books were written down in a way which said, yes, we recognise these as the 27 books? Well, that probably didn't happen until around about the 4th century. However, second thing is if you want to know when those books or a great number of those books were recognised as scripture and used by churches, that would have been around about the 2nd century. If you want to know when books were noted as being divinely inspired in themselves individually, well, that would have been in the 1st century when they were written. You know, when Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians, the Ephesians realise that they're getting God's words, okay? But it's just if you're around in the 1st century and you're living in, say, Ephesus, you might get Paul's letter to, to you guys, and maybe you'd be aware of a few other letters, but all these other writings either hadn't been yet written or hadn't yet been circulating. They started to circulate, and so, as I said, in the 2nd century, a lot of them would have been used, but we don't get that actual written, fixed, yes, this is it, list until about the 4th century. So really from the 1st century, there's this developing process of recognition and, and, and increasingly widespread use. Now, the thing which all these books in the New Testament possess, we could summarise as apostolic origin, divine qualities and corporate reception. They were either written by apostles or associated with the apostles in, in effect that they recorded their teaching. They also were recognised to have divine qualities. They shared many of God's attributes, you know, beauty, power, unity. But they also contained teaching consistent with Jesus, teaching consistent with what the apostles were saying, teaching consistent with the Old Testament. And also there's this corporate reception idea, the idea that people recognised that these books were from God, in the same way that you might say, I recognise the beauty of a sunset. It's there staring us in the face. 
Now, there are, if you've read the Da Vinci Code, you'll realise that there are a lot of other ancient books which were written, particularly in the second and third century, which are sometimes referred to as Gnostic Gospels. They fall down in all of those areas. They weren't written by apostles. They didn't have these divine qualities, and no one really at the time thought that they should be part of the New Testament canon. So the Da Vinci Code, wonderful book to read, very exciting. It's good fun, perhaps not the greatest literary thing, but not any good on history. So if you read that, you know, it's, it's not really very accurate. Now, some of you might think, what about the Apocrypha? You've heard about the Apocrypha. So if you go to a Roman Catholic church and look at the Bible, they'll have a few extra books in it which aren't in Protestant Bibles, which we use. Books like 1 and 2 Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, Ecclesiasticus and the like. Now, these books were written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Last Old Testament books was from around about the 4th century BC, New Testament books the 1st century. And the books which are in the Apocrypha tend to come from that time in between. Now, at the time of Jesus, those books were not viewed as scripture by the Jewish people. And, and as Jesus was part of that culture, there is no indication that he ever viewed those books as being part of scripture. And from what I can figure out, the early church, uh, the very early church, thought the same thing, by and large. Now, there's no citing of any books from the Apocrypha in the New Testament as scripture. It might be that one of them sort of alluded to at one point, but then... Greek poets were alluded to as well. I don't, I'm not aware of any situation where any of those books are cited as being authority of scripture. Where do these books come from and why are they there? Um, well, when they translated the Bible from, sorry, the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, they did that in about the, the 3rd century BC so that Greek readers could read the Old Testament, they translated some other books as well, which included these books which are now part of the Apocrypha. And so when that Greek version of the Old Testament was circulating, there with it were these other books as well. And so throughout church history, there's been a bit of discussion as to whether should we include those apocryphal books in the Bible or not. When it got down to the 16th century in the Reformation, the reformers said, no, they shouldn't be in the Bible. Uh, I think because pretty much Jesus didn't use them, you know, that it wasn't part, it wasn't quoted in the New Testament, etc., etc. And it also seems to suggest one or two things which are a little inconsistent with the New Testament. But the Roman Catholic Church at the time responded by saying, yes, they are in. Now, in a nutshell, I think it's best to go with those Old Testament books which were accepted and used at the time of Jesus and the apostles. Once again, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. So there's my view on that. Now, we have 66, then, divinely inspired and authoritative books in the Bible. These books tell us the good news about Jesus Christ and salvation. They tell us about God's love, God's mercy, God's holiness, God's righteousness. They tell us about the world, why it's like, how we should live in it, what our future is going to hold, etc., etc. And I think the Bible in itself bears witness to its divine origin in another way. And that is that the Bible, I believe, is self-authenticating. Let me explain what I mean by this. And I did this at 8.15 and I said to them, if you find this helpful and interesting, great. If you find the next two minutes boring, just look at me with an interested expression on your face so that you'll, I'll never know. But there's this diagram, here we go, which I prepared. Now, this is trying to show uh, that the Old Testament and the New Testament, with Jesus at the centre, authenticate themselves and give the tick of endorsement to each other. So, the Old Testament sees itself as being authoritative, as divine. You know, the prophets are recorded in the Old Testament and when they spoke, they saw themselves as speaking the word of God. Now, the Old Testament points forward to Jesus, as you would know that it's looking forward to the coming of a saviour and a king, a messiah. The Old Testament also points further ahead to some of the other things described in the New Testament, specifically the return of Christ. 
So there's the Old Testament endorsing itself, Jesus, the whole New Testament. Jesus is the centre of the Bible and he sees his own teaching as being authoritative. Clearly, he says things in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder, which is a Ten Commandment, but I say to you, don't even hate anyone. He is seeing his own teaching as being authoritative. Jesus endorses the Old Testament, citing it many times when he's being tested by Satan in the wilderness. What does he cite? He cites the Old Testament in response. Also, as we've seen, uh, he, he empowers and strengthens his disciples who then write the New Testament and he tells them that the Holy Spirit will teach them and remind them of his teachings. The New Testament writers see their own writings as being authoritative. Read any of Paul's letters. You're left in no doubt that he thinks he's writing you know, what God has to say, you know, the divinely inspired word of God. But there's also an occasion in the New Testament where one of the New Testament writers recognises one of the other New Testament writers as writing scripture. So if you read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, you'll see that Peter refers to Paul's writings, in effect, as being scripture. So he's endorsing him. And then, of course, uh, the New Testament writers clearly see Jesus' teaching as being authoritative, and they also often cite the Old Testament as being authoritative as well. The idea is that the, the Bible is continually, I guess, endorsing itself, endorsing the other parts of it, with Jesus at the centre of everything. Uh, and so I hope this sort of shows that, the, I guess, the divinely inspired, unified, authoritative quality of the Bible in another way. If you found that helpful, great. If you didn't, let's move on. And a final way that the Scriptures uh, attest to their divine nature and to their trustworthiness is through the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, whereas I think we can mount up many and various cogent and intellectually sound reasons for trusting the Scripture... Ultimately, Christians are convinced that the Bible is God's word by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a great body of Christian teaching which came out a few hundred years ago, uh, after describing various things that point to the Bible as being God's word, says, and here's a quote, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, that's referring to the Bible, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. You know, God's Spirit convicts us that it is God's word. And I remember as a boy uh, reading the Bible or verses from the Bible myself, and well before I looked in, into any of the intellectual reasons for trusting the Bible and all those apologetics questions which I've subsequently examined, um, I read the Bible and I just sort of thought, this is God's word. I just believed it. Uh, and I think that was the work of the Holy Spirit. So, where does that take us? The process of recognising the canon, the self-authenticating nature of the scripture, and the witness of the Holy Spirit all give us further assurance that the scriptures are trustworthy. Now, if we trust it, what should we do? Trust and we should obviously obey it. Not just pick and choose the bits we like, but obey all of it. Now let's move on to point three and more briefly, the transmission of the Bible. How is it that the Bible, which was written 2,000 years ago and even older in parts, has come down to us today? Now, if transmission is an interesting a topic of interest to you, I go into this in far greater depth when I do Christianity Explained, and I'll be doing it in even more depth in the second week of the Big Questions course when we look at the reliability of the Bible. But this is just a few brief comments. When historians are trying to determine the reliability of, the, of any ancient document in terms of, is what we have today 
what was originally written down, they use a test called the bibliographical test. And what they do is they gather the information from all the existing manuscript copies of an ancient text, like we don't have the original text of, you know, Peter's one Peter, right? But we have lots of copies of it, which have been copied from copies and copied from copies over the time up until the birth of the printing press. So uh, what the bibliograph test does, it gets as many copies as they can, and they try and work out from all the copies what the original one would have said. Now, the rule of thumb is the more copies you have, the better, the easier it is to work out what the original said. The other rule of thumb is the closer in time between the copy and the original, the easier it is to work out what the original said. Now, the abundance of copies of all or part of the New Testament is incredible. And um, historians pretty much conclude that they can get the New Testament to at least 99%, if not more, degrees of, of accuracy. Uh, there's a guy called Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was a former director of the British Museum, who said, the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written. Both the authenticity and general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as firmly established. Other than for a word here or a comma there or one short passage here and another short passage there, what we read now is what was originally written. That's what the historians tell us. So when we think about transmission of the Bible, we can have great confidence that what we read today is absolutely trustworthy. And even though those, those words or commas here and there, they don't go to any significant point of doctrine or Christian belief. They're very, very minor. And probably the more ancient documents they find, they might be able to solve the question of the comma in that verse or the, whether the word vert should be in that other verse or, or whatever. Thought point. An awful lot of effort has gone into transmitting the, the Bible from the first century to today. People have died for it to get it to us. We have it. We've got to keep getting the Bible and its message to other people as well. Finally, and very briefly, a few quick words on the translation of the Bible. As you may know, the Old Testament was mainly written in Hebrew and the New Testament was mainly written in Greek. But over the last 2,000 years, the scriptures have been faithfully translated into languages people can understand. Now, translation does not necessarily involve any distortion of meaning. In fact, translated scriptures are actually used in the Bible itself. Remember how I said the first major translation was the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, which is done in about the 3rd century BC? Well, in the New Testament, when the Old Testament is quoted, it's usually the Greek translation which is being quoted. Now, I think that if a translation of the original Hebrew was good enough for the original writers of the Bible should help us to encourage to say that translations should be you know, good enough for us as well. Now, over the last 2,000 years, the Bible has been translated into many languages. I mentioned William Tyndale, who was instrumental in the 16th century in getting the Bible translated into English. And today, I believe that all or parts of the Bible have been translated into over 3,300 languages. But that's not all the languages in the world. There are still more languages to do. But also translation work needs to be done in languages which already have the Bible because the language of any place such as Australia, it, the language is constantly changing. So we no longer use the 17th century version of the King James version of the Bible. We probably wouldn't understand bits of it because it was in Old English. We now use the, in our church here, the NIV, the New International Version. So we need to keep our translations, um, I guess, up to date so that they're easy to understand.
Now, just a quick word on translating scriptures. A balance needs to be struck by translators between what we call formal translation and functional translation. Formal translations seem to follow the exact words of the text, and they're just trying to you know, do word-for-word translation as much as they can. Functional translations translate the ideas of the text. Now, um, you might sort of think, why don't we just translate the words all the time exactly as they are? Well, two reasons. One, the grammar of different languages is different. So if we did a word-for-word translation from Greek into English, it would be very clunky. We'd think the words were out of order, etc., etc. But also there's the question of translating what we might call idioms or terms of speech or, or things like that. So, for example, if we were translating from Australian English into, say, you know, German, and we came across the phrase, stone the crows, a word-for-word translation might be something like, you know, throw the rock at the black bird, which doesn't really try and, you know, communicate what you want to translate. But if we sort of said something like, oh, my goodness, that's extremely surprising, you know, stone the crows, that's a, what, what the author intended, isn't it? So usually a good translation of the Bible will try and follow the words, do formal translation, but will often need to draw upon functional translation as, as well. And the NIV Bible, which we use, I think strikes a pretty good balance uh, between the both. Thought point. Uh, or firstly, uh, we can trust translations that, such as we use. Thought point, that the work of translating the Bible into languages that do not have the scriptures is still very important. And as you would know that our mission partners, Matt and Donna, are involved in that very work and very important work. Let me conclude. We started by noting that many today outside and perhaps even inside the church are sometimes confused, sceptical and sadly uninformed about the Bible. But we've seen today that there is good reason to believe that the Bible as we have it is inspired by God, uh, is self-attesting, is borne witness to by the Holy Spirit, has been well transmitted and has been well translated through the centuries. Now, there are many reasons why we can trust the Bible. There are just a few of them. And so my big idea for the, uh, our sermon this morning is that in today's world, we can absolutely, absolutely trust the Bible. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we uh, reflect on, um, I guess, the topic and the themes for today, give us understanding and we pray that this awareness and the awareness of your word and how we have it today will increase our confidence in it. Thank you that we can trust your word. We pray that we wouldn't just trust it, but that we would obey it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.